Next up in our cavalcade of awesome live podcast shows is Future Chat with Micah Trell and Nick Maddox. They are going to talk about the future of food after attending Taste Tech last night, which is another one of the Inventors Connect uh, extravaganza pieces that's been happening this week in Calgary. Over to you, Micah and Nick. Uh, so before we get started here, I did want to mention that we do normally have one other guest. Uh, his name is Rob Attrell. He's my cousin and one of our mutual friends. Uh, he unfortunately could not be here today because he is actually located in Ottawa. So Classic uh, Rob move. Yeah, I know. Just he, classic. He bails on everything that we plan, right? It's terrible. Know. We invite him, we invite him, but never never. He able just to make doesn't it. show up. No. He's so, not as good a friend uh, as I am. No. But th- thankfully, due to the power of technology, we are able to do our podcast uh, every month and, and have him join us. So he did actually ask me to, uh, to send a proxy. Hey, everyone. Future Mike here. What you're hearing right now is a little experience that we shared with our live audience at the Podcast Connect event. It has a key component that is a little lost in the audio-only version of the experience, but you can get filled in on the visual aspect if you head to our show notes and check out a link to a tweet that captured the moment. I'd also like to invite you to view the Twitter Moment compilation of our Podcast Connect journey, as well as the main Pods Connect hashtag feed, to see what Future Chat and the other participating Alberta Podcast Network shows were up to during the live Podcast Connect event that took place on June 7th, 2018 in Calgary. Now, back to the show. So, if you, uh, if you watch our show live, we're usually on a Google Hangout, so there's three of our heads, so this is, this is going to be... Rob's head today, um, just just so you have the full future chat experience. That's uh, that's something that, that we were hoping to, to give you here today. So that hopefully, if you subscribe to our, our Twitter feed and our, our podcast, then you'll you'll kind of know what you're getting into. So, so as Karen mentioned, we were at the Taste Tech event last night that was held at the Taste Market by Sate downtown here. Uh, I believe that's on Fifth Avenue and or no, sorry, Seventh Avenue and Fourth Street. Sounds street, about right. Somewhere around there. If you walk down Seventh Avenue West, you'll find it. Um, but yeah, it was hosted by Genome Alberta, and uh, obviously the Inventors Conference uh, put it on and invited a bunch of people to come and check out the latest in food technology. Um, Genome Alberta being promoters and advocates for uh, gene modification and specifically related to food. Uh, so as is, you know, you heard in the last talk from... Uh, um, Terrence. Terrence, yes. Uh, you know, that, that discussion was pretty heavily related to genome technology, more related to bacteria, but we were able to get a bit of insight into how that same sort of technology is being used to modify our food for, for various purposes. Hopefully we'll be able to kind of share some of our learnings in our conversations with the experts that were at the event last night. Yeah. So did you want to kind of start off and kind of p- paint a bit of a word picture for our audience here to, to tell us kind of how the event was set up? So I want to take you all back to last night. It's Taste Market. There's so much... There's so much food around. There's so much food. There's so much beer. And there were spirits from Eau Claire Distillery. It was tremendous. We got to have conversations with... You have a list. Yeah, so we have Origin Malting and Brewing. So they're a local craft brewery uh, based out of Strathmore. So we were able to speak with them. Uh, Able to speak with Eau Claire Distillery, a craft distiller in Alberta. Uh, But you didn't know that there was a craft distilling market. 
Um, and then we also spoke with the chief scientific officer of Genome Alberta. So that was a, a great pleasure to be able to get a bit of uh, education from the guy who's running the show for Genome Alberta. So that was that was a really cool experience. And just be able to talk to the various attendees there as well and kind of share their their interests and kind of why they were there and, and get a bit of feedback on, on their familiar understanding of genetic modification of food and why it is important to not only be aware of it, but that is promoted and uh, effectively advocated for. Yeah, absolutely. So do you want to start with like what we did, what we ate? Sure. Yeah, we'll start with that. Okay, so... First and foremost, we, Mike and I, we both bolted to the beer and that, that was with origin malting. We had a great chat with Spencer and Lynn Hilton, the parents of Kyle, the actual operations manager for origin malting and brewing. Then we headed over to the spirits, <laughs> managed to talk to David Farron, the founder and president of Eau Claire Distillery. They do fine work. And then we got to talk to, he says that we all pronounce his name Heiss. He pronounced it closer to Heiss. He's the chief, chief scientific officer for Genome Alberta and noted former resident of the Netherlands. And Into tulips, we hear. Yes, tulips did come up in the conversation. I don't know how familiar you guys are with the Netherlands. They're big on tulips. And it did manage to come into the conversation about genetic modification. <laughs> it did. And and there, there were a couple overarching themes in talking to all these different people that were at the event uh, that we want to kind of touch on today. And there are themes that I actually didn't expect to be as prevalent as they were. Um, on our show, we usually focus more on the future of science technology and kind of where things are going, um, advances, current research. Um, but one of, one of the kind of key themes that we found in talking to all these individuals was that there often isn't necessarily a need to be looking in different areas of technology that, you know, very agro centered industries like brewing, distilling, farming, there's tried and true methods and they work very, very well for what they're trying to do. Um, a lot of the new technologies such as, you know, autonomous farming, um, internet of things type implementations are very cost prohibitive especially for a lot of the the smaller local local operations so uh you know i'd i'd ask questions like you know what kind of things are you working on you know what kind of research are you doing it's like uh, not that much actually <laughs> well i mean they said that but even talking to david from the eau claire distillery or no uh sorry kyle from origin malting and brewing um when we asked them like what their process had been like because I'd heard that one of the biggest weaknesses in the Canadian brewing market about 10 years ago, it wasn't barley production because Canada has a lot of farmland. We produce a lot of barley, but it was getting the malted barley for the actual drinks side of things. And I don't know if you're familiar with the, the malting process. It's involved. You have to slightly germinate the seed and then roast it and then get it wet again and then roast it again. And it goes back and forth a few times to actually get the malted sugars out of the starch in the, you know, in the grain. But we asked him about like the cutting edge technology involved there. And he said, well, you know, I mean, it wasn't, it, we don't really tinker around with that much. Like, I mean, once we got this 
custom built cutting edge malting mission <laughs> like malting operation going you know it's been pretty pretty straightforward from there it's like oh you just got some cutting edge custom built technology for your operation yeah no big deal that's fine that was boring yeah <laughs> well and, and one of the other kind of key players in his operation was the fact that he's able to small batch brew so you know we asked him how many different varieties of of beer do you brew and he said that currently they have about 12 uh they've he made a point to mention they've won awards in nine so i mean that kind of speaks for itself we, we, we joke saying you know what happened to the other three and you know he said they weren't good enough yet so <laughs> um but he said that they've actually up to this point tried 47 different varieties of beers because they are able to small batch brew so they want to try something new they're not committing a whole bunch of inventory space and capital into trying that hoping that it will sell they will just brew it you know put it put in their brew pub have people try it and if it works it works if it doesn't they'll they'll try it and tweak it and they they have people like dedicated to hire people working on different varieties of beer um different methods all this kind of stuff to try to find the kind of recipe that people are looking for and that people will buy so so that that was, that was a pretty interesting perspective again coming from other areas that might be, you know, looking at different brewing methods, like actual new technologies or different strains of yeast or barley, that kind of stuff. And that also comes into play, obviously. But they're basically just focusing on trying to find out what their customer base likes and wants and being able to take advantage of the fact that they are a small brewery and being able to try different things. And within like, I mean, I know this from being like, not active, but like, perceptive to the beer scene in calgary anyway they are doing really exciting work with their beers like the northeastern ipa appears to be the next big thing coming out in the beer scene for a while it was sours and there were just sours every did you try I, some sours? I've, I've tried sours i don't like them at all really how many did you try they're surprisingly sour um <laughs> you I've don't tried, say i've tried one and i had to send it back I mean, like, like she offered to bring a sampler. So, you monster. Okay, so, so I, when, when I go to, when I go to a pub, I usually say, you know, what are your beers on tap? And when I hear one that kind of seems different, like a craft brew, I'll uh, be like, oh, you know, that, that sounds interesting. And she's like, she mentioned a sour. She's like, you know, just beware. It's, it's, it's sour. Like the name kind of speaks for itself. And I was like, I, I kind of still want to try it. So, you know, she, she, she's like, oh, I'll get you a sampler. And I tried it. I was like, yeah, no, that's sour. So I just stuck to my usual, usual big rock and, uh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Big Rock's great. It's a good, a good standby. But I do try, I do yeah. try different things. And uh, but sour was not, was not. Not so me. much. No. Yeah, I've had I, my experience with sours was like hit or miss. This episode is brought to you in part by ATB Financial. At ATB, they are committed to building diversity into their teams and designing with a human-centered, inclusive approach. As more of our day-to-day activities shift online, from shopping to catching up with friends to changing the details of our mortgage terms. So many experiences have gone from in-person to digital. This means that the role of bank branches and human-to-human customer service is continually evolving. In the medical sector, there's a strong emphasis on helping and providing medical care. However, there's often a lack of service in the traditional sense. Think of the frustration of not knowing how long you'll be waiting in line or in a waiting room, not being welcomed with a friendly greeting, or having limited access to the information or services you need online. Contrast this to entering a high-end hotel, where every part of the sensory experience is aimed at fostering a particular atmosphere, and each staff member has the innate desire to serve and please guests. Of course, ATB's end goal is not to replicate a hotel experience within bank branches. The inspiration they've taken is about the human-centered approach to designing a space and providing optimized service through atmosphere and emotion that resonates with customers. 
One difference in banking is that the experience starts before a customer actually walks through the door. Entering a branch might be the third step in a customer's journey, as they may have already tried to process a transaction at an ATM or find the information online. When they enter a branch, they're looking to be assured that their problem will be solved, that they'll be treated like a valued customer, and that their time will be well spent. Branches are an extension of ATB's brand. They provide the opportunity to listen carefully to the needs of customers and use the in-branch experience to learn more, to build personal connections, and to help Albertans on their financial journey. In transforming in-branch experiences, ATB are taking inspiration from everywhere, but their end goal is simple, for customers to leave feeling that they're one step closer to their financial goals. To learn more about this and other approaches by ATB to make banking better for you, you can head to atbalphabeta.com. But Northeastern IPAs I'm really excited about because there's, it's a callback to history, but at the same time, it's like, like forefront brewing. Mm-hmm. Like it's based upon this one strain of yeast that really, really liked to set up shop in barrels. And it was impossible to clean out of the barrels when they were shipping them. So they'd ship flat beer from England to New England, where you get the New England IPA. But when it came out, it was just like, it was not super fizzy, like we would be used to in drinking a beer. It's just slightly fizzy with a lot of grapefruit flavors. And that all has to do with the chemistry of that yeast interacting with like specific compounds within the hops and things like that. So it's it's really exciting. I think once they dial it in a little more, they'll have a really nice product. I mean, it was really nice when I tried it. I thought so. I thought it was if, a little... If li- you think it'd use improvement, then... I, mean- I thought that one was a little heavy on grapefruit, and I'm sure within the next batch or two, they'll have it down. Their, their other IPA, the one that they say that they shot for balance, it was really nice. Okay. So, origin brewing and malting. I don't know what you're doing after that. Well, after <laughs> the podcasts are over, just get yourselves to Strathmore set yourselves up they've got a tasting room you can go for a tour of the farm if you want it sounds like a great time yeah and it, it is a family-run operation and that was one of the kind of things that worked well for them was the parents ran the malting and the farming side and the the son-in-law ran the brewing operations and it seems to be working really well for them and and one of the things that allows them to be successful and, and basically have access to a market is the advent of social media because prior to the rise of social media such as Twitter and Facebook, where these smaller brands could gain a presence and gain a following, you had no way of hearing about them. Like yeah. You relied on the distribution systems to get them into stores, but it's a chicken and egg type problem, right? Because mm-hmm. you're either you know, good enough to get into a store, but even then you have the money and advertising behind the bigger brands that kind of take up that shelf space. But with social media now, you don't even have to rely on the distribution system. You can set up your own distribution either through direct sales. Actually, I'm not sure if direct sales are even allowed, but you can set up brew pubs where you're pouring your own drinks, you know, assuming you have a licensed facility for that and, uh, and have the customers come to you instead of having to get your product into stores to be discovered. So, so that was one of the things that was, playing really well for them and and you know we'll uh we'll have links in the show notes to their to their site so you can definitely check them out and yeah and in terms of their social media what i found fascinating was they said you know they were worried about solely relying on social media for their marketing because you know who's using social media it's oh the millennials the kids with their phones but they said they would tweet out or share on facebook that They had a new brew coming to their tasting room and within a couple hours, it was full of 63 year olds. Like they just, they saw the tweet. They're like, my God, I have to get down to the tasting room. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think, I mean, being in Strathmore, it, it, 
I guess people in general want to support the local community, um, identify with a brand. But I think especially smaller towns like Strathmore, Cochrane, um, they, they, they definitely want to keep it in the community. So I, I'd imagine they get a lot of support from the people in Strathmore as you know a sense of pride and being able to support the people that are trying to, to participate in that market. And it was actually interesting kind of analoging social media and that access to market the same way that, I mean, we're trying to have pipelines built for Alberta to ship their product for oil, right, and, and natural gas. And that's a limiting factor at this point is having access to the market. Like the product itself is great. There's a lot of it to sell, but there's just no way to get to that market. So social media is effectively a pipeline for a lot of these smaller businesses that, you know, if it wasn't there, they'd have no chance of... It's relating it to so, oil I mean, terms. Well, I mean, it's like, it's how you think about it. We're Alberta, it's, Nick. That's true. <laughs> drill, baby, drill. Amen. <laughs> um so yeah, I, I think social media was definitely, you know, talking about old and new technology, that was definitely a new technology that has, has has greatly affected the uh local local businesses, especially in, in food and drink and, and being able to to have a presence in a market. And it sounded like because when we talked to uh David of the Eau Claire Distillery, it sounded like they were on a similar trajectory with their social media because like, you know, how do you get the word out? You've started this new this new distillery, you feel like you have a great product, but how do you tell people about it? And they also experienced a lot of success based on their use of social media to get the message out, to get people excited about it. And they've experienced a lot of growth because of it, which mm -hmm. like it's the great side of social media. Yeah. It's, I think as far as the distillery side goes again, like I had never even heard that craft distilling was a thing. Um, I mean, like I brought up the fact that people do home brewing, which I think goes a long way for promoting craft brews because people can kind of do that on their own. And they say, you know, if they can do it, I can do it. And then they try to support other small breweries, you know, not, you know, I mean, you do your own home brewing. I don't think you consider yourself on the same level as a craft brew, no. but I mean, <laughs> no, it, 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 at, least, at least helps you relate to the idea of, of trying to do something different. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think craft distilling is, is very different because like any product, you go into the liquor store and you see all these different products on the shelf and you try to find things that are different, that are unique, that are possibly local, but you don't actually know where they're coming from. Um, but through social media, you're able to identify with that brand, you know, who's making, you know, where uh, that product's coming from. You know, in the case of Origin, like, you know where that barley is being grown and you know who's growing it. Like, that's, that again, that goes a long way. I don't, I don't know if you have seen the uh, the Portlandia sketch on, you know, they're, they're at the restaurant ordering chicken and they're asking all these questions about, you know, where does the chicken come from? What's the farmer's name? What was the name of the chicken? Can we go visit the chicken? It, it, it was very, it, it was a very funny take on that idea of wanting to know where your food's coming from. But I think there's, there's a definite level of truth to that. Um, because I know for, for myself, like I try to be a conscious consumer and be intentional about the choices I'm making with, you know, the small things like, you know, you're not going to necessarily do that with tomatoes when you go to the store, but maybe you won't, maybe I won't think <laughs> like you're into craft tomatoes. <laughs> um, but, but I definitely with, with stuff like beer, um, that that's something that, that people see an opportunity to be intentional about their choice with. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to continue on with social media and how that's affected people? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Nick, I certainly would. This is one of the next classic segues that takes me like two seconds to pick up on. Um, so as, as far as the GMO side goes, like with the agriculture brewing side, there isn't a ton as far as like direct 
genetic modification outside of, you know, selective breeding of, uh, you know, different grains and, and all that kind of stuff and trying to, you know, find something that's, you know, resistant to disease, all that kind of stuff. But, um, but then you get into stuff like salmon farming, which is a pretty hot topic right now. And, and, and I had no idea. Well, I mean, I, I've heard of it, but I, I hadn't known too much about the, you know, finer details of what goes into salmon farming and the differences between genetically modified and wild caught, I guess, or, or just regularly farmed. I'm not sure if every farm salmon is GMO. I don't think it would be. I'm assuming there's farm salmon and wild salmon and GMO farmed. What? Probably. Like you can farm salmon without it being genetically modified. Yes, that right? is true. Yeah, um, but but I think that that is another thing that people try to be intentional about the choices that they're making at the grocery store. So you have like organic, and then you have GMO or non-GMO or just yeah. un, unknown. I but guess. Apparently, like wild versus well, wild versus farmed. That's like one aspect that apparently blows up on social media all the time, and I had no idea. Mm-hmm. The one thing I had heard about was that. Apparently, like farmed salmon, they don't have quite the right color. Oh, yeah. So the the salmon gets its pink color, much like flamingos, from their diet, and so the farmed salmon does. It's not quite as vibrant. So apparently, they'll every so often in the feed there'll be whatever that helps them turn pink. Yeah, fascinating. These are the things that I find interesting. It, it, it might be the confirmation bias talking, but but I I do associate wild salmon with like a super pink, super red salmon hmm. uh, maybe that's just the marketing working but yeah i mean I'd, I'd buy into that and then like in terms of like other controversies around salmon there's the whole gmo versus non-gmo and we had some salmon we did how did you like the salmon it was delicious i thought it was great yeah. it was sous vide cooked which i actually hadn't had before i've that's a pretty common uh, trend these days is cooking things sous vide style. Is everyone familiar with sous vide cooking? Okay. So what you have is it's like a big bucket of water. You plunk down like a little thermostat. It helps circulate the water, but it also keeps it at a really constant temperature. So like, I don't know what the temperatures for a proper medium rare steak is. No idea. It's, it's, it's fairly low temperature. It's, I think is on the same scale of slow cooking. Maybe, maybe Not a really. little bit higher. No. Like, so sous vide cooking. No. <laughs> Why wouldn't it be? Maybe not well, like super, you're, super You're not low. shooting for the slow cooking per se. What you really want is that everything comes out to that perfect temperature because you keep it in the thermostated bath. So you know that the whole steak is spot on. And then you take it out. I think what I've seen people do, they don't even sear it because they don't want to mess up that, like the perfect interior. What a lot of chefs will do once they take it out of the sous vide cooker is they'll go over it with a blowtorch oh, to, to give it that nice like caramel color right. on the outside of the beef. Well, n- not all of us have blowtorches at home, Nick. We can't all. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have a blowtorch at yeah. Who here has a blowtorch at home? I'm a very, very, very casual cook. Good so man. There we go. Good so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so li- listen in. There's some, some tips here. For the rest of us, just use a pan <laughs> or a barbecue, I guess. Anyway. <laughs> So the salmon was delicious, uh, but apparently this salmon also, like this was GMO salmon? Yeah, it was, it was grown, it was genetically modified and grown for the purpose of growing quickly. Um, we growing were, quickly and efficient use of feed. 
Yeah, I think that that's not a more like a side effect, but I I do agree that that oh, was. Oh no, that's like benefit. that's a big deal. Is it? Well, I guess from from a commercial aspect, yeah, it's part of the sure. cost. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, but I guess we, we we were explaining that salmon typically has about a three year production cycle, so from the time that it's hatched, I guess, or birthed. What do ha- what do salmon do? Mother keeps them in a little pouch. They poke their little head out. It's how salmon are born. Maybe. I'll take your word for it. And then, yeah, so usually it's about a 24 to 36 month time frame for actually being able to sell the salmon. Um, but through genetic modification, they're able to get to where they're able to sell it within 18 months, 16, 18 to, months. 16 to 18 months. Yeah. So cutting in half. So effectively, you can sell twice as much salmon. You're not you're not limited by that three three year time frame. So that, that works really well for a uh, cost effective way to supply the demand for salmon and the fact that they require less food to put on weight like this because that's one of the like in terms of the broad picture of sustainability going forward as a human race that's on track to have 10 billion people soon like not if thanos has his way <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah like the the fact that we use a lot of grain and other feed that you could just eat directly, but we use that to produce meat. That's like an inefficiency in the broad global production market. So the fact that they take less food and they take up nitrogen much better, he said, which is pretty exciting because that's another limiting factor because you need nitrogen to put on muscle. But yeah, I, I was really impressed. And like I said, delicious. I couldn't tell any difference between this salmon and any other salmon I've had. Maybe I'm just not a salmon connoisseur, but also we thought the salmon was great. We were like, man, this must be really good quality salmon. We were talking to the chef as this happened and he looks at us and goes, yeah, well, I think the cooking had something to do with it too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This show is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ETB. We've been a member of the Alberta Podcast Network for about seven months now, and in that time we've had so much fun being a part of the growing podcast industry in Alberta and uh, being able to collaborate with a lot of the different other uh, podcasters in Alberta. You may have heard some of the collaborators with us, uh, such as Northern Nerd, Press Start to Join, as well as the Assumptions Podcast. Uh, just to name a few. So there's so many more podcasts in Alberta that are part of the Alberta Podcast Network. So be sure to check them out at uh, www.albertapodcastnetwork.com. And uh, while you're there, you can also take a survey to help us serve uh, you guys as well as the other listeners uh, that listen to shows on the network a little bit better. Um, it's at albertapodcastnetwork.com slash survey. And uh, just take a couple minutes and fill out some questions for us. Uh, let us know what shows you listen to and uh, just help us get to know you a bit better and, and what kind of things you might want to listen to going forward. So uh, be sure to check that survey out. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy uh, our show as well as the other shows on the Alberta Podcast Network uh, in the months going forward. So again, that's albertapodcastnetwork.com slash survey. Just take a couple minutes and fill that survey out for us. And thanks to Alberta Podcast Network as well as ATB for supporting our show. It, it, was, it was definitely a, a reality check coming from, you know, again, someone who focuses more on the technology and theoretical side. And it's like, I guess you could have a really good quality salmon, but just totally screw up the cooking and it tastes horrible. So yeah. it, was, it was a good kind of 
balance between the two points of view for sure. Yeah, like, just so you know, guys, <laughs> I was here too. <laughs> um, one of the other fascinating things I found about the genetic modification was one of the issues they have with salmon is, I believe, was it temperature fluctuations due to seasonality? Yes. And that what happens is if the temperature drops to a certain level and is sustained, your salmon population dies. So again, more from the, the economic cost aspect, like you, you, you want your salmon to live because you've invested in them and you're, you're trying to sell it. So what they did is they took genes that exist in species like Arctic char, which exists in colder waters. And so their blood is more able to withstand the colder temperatures. Yeah, but these salmon are able to produce a protein in their blood, which keeps their blood from freezing. Yeah. It was described as an antifreeze protein. Which I mean, I, I'm I'm picturing like the blue fluid you pump into your your vehicle. Obviously, it's not. I I I'd, I'd imagine it's not the same sort of antifreeze. Like I I have taken the physical chemistry courses where we go into <laughs> that kind of stuff. Like it just has to be something that will inhibit the crystal growth, and that can be like that's why we salt the roads in winter so that well, Ontario salts the roads in winter. <laughs> we gravel the roads. Yeah, that's so not so much. Ice rinks. Rocks, <laughs> rocks destined for your windshield. It's calorie life. <laughs> yeah, so that like, and that's a way of decreasing the the freezing temperature of water. But it's just whatever shape this protein is inhibits the crystal growth of ice, so they're able to live at much lower temperatures. So you don't have that that super kill that apparently farm salmon experience. Yeah, and I guess one of the necessities with using that that uh, that gene in salmon was they had to pair it with a growth hormone. Um, or growth gene, I guess, not growth hormone, but uh, maybe it is a hormone. The gene produces the hormone? Hormone, I guess, sure, we'll go with that. Um, but which causes that that rapid growth that allows them to grow to full size in 18 months instead of 36. Yeah. So I, I guess because um, the species like Arctic char that exists in the colder waters year-round, the salmon didn't need that behavior year-round. So I guess they didn't go into too much detail about why they couldn't allow that full period in like with that gene being active but i guess i think it was a side effect of breeding i could be wrong yeah in any case they had to pair it with with the growth gene and and that allowed them to accelerate their their life cycle and, and be able to, to hit the market a bit faster yeah we do have several hours of audio of us <laughs> talking to people that yeah. we need to go over <laughs> yeah so on, on that note we will be posting uh either as a separate podcast or interspliced with this one uh the interviews that we did have with the individuals that we'll be mentioning at the end of the show and, and in our show notes so be sure to check that out to get kind of the full the full live experience we were we were, we were asked by one of the the interviewers you know do you want to go to a quieter place to interview and we're like oh no no it's fine this is this part of the experience you know they listen to a live podcast you want to hear the background noise you want to hear the buses go by you want to hear the glasses clinking it's yeah. So in credit. stark contrast to what Karen said, like guys make noise. Like, <laughs> that way they'll know you're here. Um, but yeah, so so that kind of goes over the the GMO aspect and that it is a pretty big necessity in, in some of these industries. Like you made the comment that without farm salmon, fr farm salmon, farm salmon, um, and in this case genetically modified, which increases their life cycle, um, like the the salmon populations of the market would basically crumble. Oh, like I've from what I've heard, like the if we didn't farm fish, the and we solely relied on wild caught, there would be a population collapse in the fisheries. In like, it it wasn't even that long. It was like week to month timescales. So 
if you like fish, if you want fish around, you you either have to pay an exorbitant cost for wild caught or find a good way to farm it. But and like with the genomics and the the salmon, like we heard that you know social media was integral in spreading a lot of mistruths or maybe misconceptions about that. So it it's interesting how it's played an opposing role in as opposed to something like a brewery where it can really, really help them develop quickly to like a genetically modified organism where apparently like actual decades worth of government research has said this is, this is fine to consume. There's no effects on human health. There's no risk of cross-contamination with the environment, but still because there's so much fervor around like concerns about GMOs, like, that has really hindered its development, at least here. Yeah. And and that's, like you alluded to, that's the double-sided effect of social media, right? Like, I think we're all familiar with, you know, the Facebook effect of sharing a post and it kind of going viral and people not doing fact checks and reacting to it and participating in these online discussions with anonymous or not very anonymous people uh, making these these comments, these claims, and just this whole conversation going around that is that may or may not be informed. Well, like we did an episode on GMOs early on a few years ago. Oh, a lot of people did not like that. Oh, we heard mm-hmm. about that. Yeah. And I mean, like it goes as far as, you know, vaccines and I mean, like we, we that's kind of what we try to do on our show is, is address these things that are being talked about because we not that not to say that we're gospel truth on any of this, but we we like to have the conversations in an informed way and at least have people thinking about that there might be two sides to the coin. Um, and I mean, like even even with the salmon thing, like there are valid concerns about genetically modified salmon. About or sal- I keep saying salmon. 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 Salmon sandwiches. Salmon sandwiches. Um, wild versus farmed, and then different forms of farming because you can do cage farming and then you can do land farming as well yeah on land in tanks yeah cage farming being basically cordoned off regions within oceans lakes i guess Uh, not lakes no they said some great lakes Um, and i think the salmon have different tolerances for salinity maybe but there's yeah they put it in they put salmon in the great lakes specifically for sport fishing mm -hmm. because screw normal great lakes fish (laughs) i have no interest in catching those i want a salmon but I don't want to travel for it. <laughs> <laughs> Pacific Atlantic and Huron. Huron salmon. Huron <laughs> salmon. It's probably like Lake Ontario. Yeah, maybe. I'm, I'm not sure I'd want... Is that the warmer lake? I don't know. No, Erie is the warmer lake. Okay. It's also the... I'm sorry, people that might be listening and are from near Lake Erie, but it's also the grossest of the Great Lakes. <laughs> <laughs> no, because there's a lot of agricultural land, so there's a lot of runoff, and it's always got E. coli outbreaks because it's also the shallowest and the warmest, and it's the gross Great Lake. <laughs> Beautiful, but gross. <laughs> Point Pelee National Park. Beautiful. Stuck in a gross lake. So... In typical Nick Segway fashion, I want to say something I heard about over social media was Arctic apples. Mm-hmm. A specific breed uh, or a specific apple bred so that it doesn't brown. 
So you, it doesn't bruise the same way and it doesn't rot the same way as it gets older. Cause it just, it's missing the enzyme in an apple that causes it to brown and break down and like browning and breaking down. That's great. If you want a seed to propagate and like make a tree, like if you fling the apple somewhere, but not so good if you want apples around to eat. And we have some Arctic apples here today. These aren't just snacks for us. Well, I mean, they are, but they're here for a reason. There's, there's, a, there's an excuse for having them up here. If someone else wants some, it's like, come on up. Yeah. We'll, we'll share pieces. Yeah, so the, these are the Arctic apples. Uh, they're dried. Um, it says, apples bursting with flavor. Wholesome, sweet, and crunchable. Oh, my. This is our first time trying them. They're, they were at the event last night, and we decided to, to bring them here. Let Shut up and eat one. It's so good. They look like fries. They do. Mm. Isn't that sweet? They are very crunchy. No um, comment on flavor. It tastes like an apple. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what I was supposed to expect from a dried apple. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like it's. I'm. I'm not. I'm not big on dried fruit normally. I don't. I don't. I don't eat it. Not for any reason. I just don't eat it normally. But I. I would have expected it to be a bit more chewy, like have a bit of moisture. Did you see the part where it said it was dried? Well, I know, but you can, you can dry something and still have moisture in it. Can you? That sounds like partly drying something. <laughs> Is anything ever fully dried? Without wetness, how do we know what dryness <laughs> is? They have to have some level of wetness to be dried. So the point is, I'm really impressed with these apples. Would they, would they brown if they were dry? No, so that that's the thing. Like you can You can even see looking at them, like... This is a perfectly white apple that stayed white through the drying process. And like, otherwise you'd have to add like lemon juice, something like that to, there's chemistry to it. It inhibit it inhibits the oxidation. So the only ingredient listed on here is Arctic golden apples. So there, there are no preservatives or acetic acid added to it. That's for, right. And that's what you will see with a lot of apple slices that are marketed. Hmm. Yeah. It's to keep them from browning. It'll help with the fruit salads that we make. I pack for Emma's lunch sometimes. I see. So I, 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 I packed her avocado the other day. and if they Did had you it, use lemon juice? I did. I sprinkled some lime juice on there. She, she still wondered why there was some brown on there because it's, it's not 100% effective. But, I mean, I, I know my way around an avocado. Don't, don't worry. As, as, <laughs> I was so worried until this moment. My as, entire life, I've been like, oh, God, Mike's got avocados. Are they going to brown? As, Is as, it going to be okay? As someone with a Colombian wife, you get used to having avocados with a lot of different things. She actually doesn't like avocados that much. Um, I see. But when we go to her parents' house and, and have lunch, then there'll always be, you'll have rice, you'll have avocado, you'll have a meat, you might have potato. Beans? Beans, yes, beans. They are the musical fruit. I'm, I'm not sure if you've heard. I hear they're good for your heart. <laughs> I don't think there's anything else. I think no, that's I, I think that's where it ends. Yeah. Beans, they're good for your heart. <laughs> and we can walk away happy with the state of our hearts. That that is how the song goes. Yes. Um, <laughs> coming back to salmon. I, I did I did want to mention that as far as the cage versus land farming, the the reason that people are concerned about salmon farming in general is because of the potential for invasive species if the cage farming system i guess fails specifically salmon lice fish lice. yeah there's various various diseases that can be spread that's a pest due to well 
It wouldn't be an episode of Future Chat without a semantic argument. <laughs> or five. <laughs> sure. It's a pest that can spread. Yes. Like disease. Okay. Um, that's propagated by, by farmed salmon getting into the habitats of wild. And, and I guess the, this specific salmon that we were having, it was bred so that it was sterile. So that if it did happen to escape, then it wouldn't be able to crossbreed. Um, yeah. And the other aspect was that they are a Pacific salmon near Atlantic. Yeah. So then the salmon even we the had... species-wise, like they wouldn't be able to breed either because they're two different species. Yeah. Like, that, that he also said part, behaviorally yeah. they were very different in their breeding. So yeah. they just... Even if, even if they tried, they wouldn't be able to. It'd be like... How, how, how do we do this thing <laughs> <laughs> run away <laughs> i'm so glad we had an impression of salmon trying to breed on our live episode it's tremendous <laughs> in the same vein it wouldn't be ms of future chat without a very bad impression of, of non- salmon an- breeding non-anthropomorphic species oh that's right yeah. yes um, so again, that, that is a valid concern, the cage versus land, but a lot of the farming is done on land. So there is no risk of that invasive species in the first place. Or like even like, cause there's also concern that the lice could spread from the large monoculture of a caged salmon to wild. But if it's in the middle of land in a tank of water, it's very unlikely that other salmon would be infected. Exactly. Yes. You just get very lucky. Nigh on impossible. No. Unless one gets picked up by a hurricane and like dumped very unfortunately for that salmon. Yes. Yeah. Part, part, part of science is examining the potential edge cases and, and that is one to consider. Yeah. But, you know, essentially zero, zero chance. And I wanted to briefly touch on the other theme we noticed, which was like finding, finding solutions in old technology for new process or like new processes because like because like you said we were like we're usually focused on like the bleeding edge what's happening today and where that's going tomorrow and then and in the decades to come but they had a few things that were really interesting like the guy from eau claire saying you know oh like it's it's a still it's pretty standard and then you ask him about it. Oh, so it's like fairly straightforward. Oh no. Oh, it's not straightforward at all because like you have so many different parts of the distillate. So the first stuff that comes out, that's the dangerous stuff. And that's why we don't home distill things. Well, when I brought up home distilling, he was very quick to shut me down on that and say, Nope, not (laughs) happening. I was like, well, well, no, he was like, no, no, that's never never happening. That's not going to happen. I think you qualify saying, I don't think it's ever going to happen. Because I guess he might, yeah, he might have actually could, said that. But that'd be a very bad decision. Because I guess with home brewing, the worst that would happen is a stomach ache, maybe. If that, I mean, just taste bad. If you if something's gone terribly wrong, you could die. But yeah, no, like, but it's it's really obvious if something goes horribly wrong. It's the beer be- the beer becomes infected. And it usually has funny colored things floating on it and it smells awful. I don't remember adding that to my brew. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's because like beer was so influential on Western civilization flourishing. We actually evolved like piece, people of Western descent have evolved to have the right enzymes in their gut to like deal with alcohol more efficiently because that was the source of safe drinking water prior to 
you know, modern processes. But so you, you've actually, you have some evolutionary pressure so that if you smell it and it smells bad or you taste it and it tastes bad, it's probably bad for you just because beer was so pivotal on our evolution. Yeah. Whereas with the distilling the spirits, I guess it's a lot easier for things to go wrong and it's a lot more likely that you would die if you did it wrong. Yeah. Versus, versus home brewing. And I mean, I'm, I'm not a big spirit drinker, but if I drank some vodka and it tasted bad, I'd be like, well, maybe that's how it's supposed to taste. <laughs> with with beer, like beer is supposed to taste like beer. Like you, you it's not at the kind of thing, like you said, you'd, you'd probably notice if something was wrong with it. And if it tasted bad, you'd just you'd yeah. spit it out, right? But he also like, he talks about like the the head, the heart, and the tails to the still process. And like you can, like a lot of cheaper vodkas especially will incorporate more of the edge stuff just because that means you get more out of it and it's cheaper overall but like the hearts are the good stuff and i had some of their vodka while we were there and i think it tasted hearty Hmm. yes like hearty or like from the heart from the hearts okay yeah I wouldn't describe it as like a hearty beverage. Well, when you said <laughs> so it was I'll, hearty, I was like, <laughs> I'll have a couple filling. of these and yeah. that'll be my lunch. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's not really the purpose of a, of a liquid lunch generally. No, no. And, but even, and like in terms of finding new solutions, there was also like, now they like the distillers and the brewers, they can be more selective about what grain they're using. So instead of, taking things together in big batches they can say oh let's try only working with stuff from the north face of the valley and now let's try using only stuff from the south face of the of the valley and see how that plays into things which i w- i was really excited about it sounds like a really interesting area they're going towards yeah that actually brings up a good good point on the genetic manipulation we'll call it because it's, it's not really genetic modification in the sense of directly affecting well the genes there's selective breeding versus changing the dna in a laboratory so one of those things that i found really intriguing was when you're farming for grains or just farming in general anything i guess that there are ways to you know encourage disease and pests and that kind of stuff to not affect your crops just through entirely natural quote-unquote methods of you know crop rotation um so that you're not in that specific area you're not having the pests and stuff just kind of say hey there's this kind of crop here we better go over here and they just kind of set up shop there they're always either there's a good and a bad one kind of rotated in and out so Mm -hmm. they're not just encouraged to kind of stay there um or you can set up a crop nearby or next to your field that they'll be more attracted to so they're not affecting the crop you know, the money crop, I guess, right. That, that you're not wanting to be yeah. affected at all. And curiously, we heard that from the chief of genome Alberta. Mm-hmm. So like I was, I think I'm more pro GMO than he is. He's cause I was <laughs> like, Oh yeah, GMOs on everything. They're great. It's awesome. He's like, ah, you can use selective breeding too. Yeah. You don't even have to selectively breed. You can just plant something nearby and it'll pull the pests away. And I'm like, huh, I didn't think I would be in this position. <laughs> and and he even said that he he's not pro or a, like he's on against GMO. He yeah. wouldn't be part of Alberta genome. But he, he said he's not pro genome or genetic modification. He's pro advanced, efficient methods, yeah. safe, reliable, and, and good methods. So he wouldn't be promoting 
genomics and engineering modification if it wasn't safe and wasn't the benefit of the greater population. Oh, of course. And he said his the biggest takeaway he wanted people to get from the event was that not only were GMOs safe, they're like, you know, they're fine, but also that they're delicious. Yes, that we can all agree on. Yeah. So uh, I think we're out of time now. I'm getting I'm getting the signal from from our friend over there. So uh, thanks for everyone for attending our our show. Uh, our stuff is up there. So make sure to follow us on social media. Um, we do have business cards and some stickers. If you want a sticker, if you're into stickers, come and get one. Um, and uh, yeah, outside of that, thanks Rob for being here. He didn't, didn't you, contribute Rob. too much, but he'll have to make up for it in a future episode, I guess. That's right. Yeah. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you.